Welcome to the third episode of AIR, an interview podcast series with a different theme each episode. Joining me today to talk about the relationship between cities and sound is Eric Cloutier, a DJ of over 20 years and the founder of Palanoia Records. was born and raised in Detroit, the birthplace of techno, where a longing for an escape from everyday socioeconomic hardships fueled the city's music scene, and especially its rave culture. Electronic music then brought him to New York in the early 2000s, a city reeling from an influx of people and a quickly growing music scene where artists have to work overtime just to stand out. It was here that Eric became a regular and a resident at The Bunker, a label he continues to work closely with today. Now based in Berlin, Eric is adjusting to life and music in a city where absolutely anything goes. No problem. I guess I want to start this conversation with a quote from Derek May. I was reading an interview of his where in the early days of techno he was saying that Detroit is in total devastation, factories are closing, people are drifting away, kids are killing each other for fun. If our music is a soundtrack to all that, I hope it makes people understand what kind of disintegration we're dealing with. So can you tell me a bit about uh, the Detroit that May was talking about in this quote? I mean, he's definitely talking about the late 70s early 80s with the the probably the final bit of what they referred to as the white flight which is when uh the unions decided to negotiate for more money and they realized that they didn't need to live in the city anymore they could move to the suburbs and get a house with a yard there was no more need for an apartment complex and people were just leaving in droves and that left a lot of the poorer workers with nobody to kind of commune with. So that involved a lot of grocery stores shutting down, uh, police forces being understaffed. And it just, it ended up becoming a, a basic war zone in Detroit. And he was definitely pointing out that that's kind of what was left is just the crime and the the detritus of the city that if, if you couldn't afford to get out, you were stuck. And there's probably still people that are living in Detroit today that have never had a chance to move out because they could never get ahead. And he was just kind of pointing out that it's, it's, a, it's a gangster city and uh, when you don't have much and you don't have many options, crime and corruption is what bubbles up to the surface. So growing up in Detroit, I mean, did you feel something similar? Obviously, you were growing up in a different time, but did you feel kind of the, I don't know, aftershocks of this particular moment? Was that still present for you? I mean, it's still present today. Even if you go there during the festival, if you go there during the festival, all you really catch is the best part of Detroit, which is this very vibrant, colorful, culturally diverse city 
And when it's given the chance to shine, it shines beautifully. But if you go to Detroit and the, the other 363 days of the year, when the festival isn't happening, that's when you really catch it. And uh, yeah, it's still going on. It's not nearly as bad because the city has done quite a bit to really encourage new, especially artistic growth in the city. And they're enticing businesses to come back. Not 100% sure if it's still active, but for the longest time, the city was offering any new business that opens up. If you move to Detroit and claim Detroit as your home for the, your, your company, you get like a three or five year tax break where you don't have to pay any taxes. And they really are trying to drive the, the culture and people to come back. It's working, but it's not working in the <laughs> the speed that they would like it to but it's still even when I was growing up and now it's still there's racial tension for sure there's still a lot of hardship I mean if you go downtown Detroit there isn't a there isn't a pharmacy there isn't a grocery store there isn't a good gas station so if you need any of the things you need to survive you end up going back out to the suburbs mm -hmm. so it's kind of in its own weird bubble where they don't have the things that you need to sustain a community but they don't have the community needed to sustain the business so it's this catch-22 of what do we do and like how do we make it work what was that like for you growing up like are you from downtown Detroit I'm not from downtown Detroit I'm from just a little bit outside but I still I mean even where I grew up and then subsequently moved to, you still see it. It doesn't have to be necessarily Detroit proper to see the effects. But I spent most of my teenage and young adolescent years down in Detroit because I was going to concerts and I was going to parties. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, I didn't necessarily tell my parents that I was going to be going downtown <laughs> just so they didn't have to worry. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a strange place to grow up, for sure. It's a really strange place to grow up. So I guess when we were talking about what the topic of this interview was going to be, you mentioned this kind of escapist nature of uh, Detroit Techno when it first started bubbling up. And I guess when we talk about escapism, we're talking about kind of entering into a world that's not your own or different from the one that you live in. In what ways would you say that techno sounds escapist? I mean, even Model 500 stuff right from the beginning all kind of talks about, in a way, if you some of the vocals and some of the songs, they definitely have this uh, sci-fi vibe to them, you know, where he's, he, he definitely wants to get out of the Motor City and he wants to go to space. But the most obvious, obvious example of any of it in Detroit is Drexia. And he, I mean, they literally created their own planet under the sea and they really just wanted to check out entirely I mean everybody in his world has a name he created vehicles for the Drexians and it's just you can tell that to him it was a comic book escape where you read the magazines and you want to just transport yourself to another reality and, and and let your mind wander that was what Drexia was doing is just shutting out 
probably car alarms and gunfire and just all sorts of chaos that was going on outside of his house. I'm not sure if you, I mean, it sounds like you know a bit about the background story, but the story about this underwater world that you mentioned was pregnant women who were thrown off of slave ships coming from Africa and then they had these babies who naturally uh, acclimatized to living underwater, I guess. Maybe you can just talk a bit more about that's, that. You, that's <laughs> exactly what it is. The whole story with the Drexians is that uh, when the slaves were brought over um, by slave traders, that uh, any pregnant woman was considered a liability, and they pushed them overboard, and these pregnant women ended up surviving at the bottom of the ocean and evolving and having these underwater aquatic babies that turned into basically a super race in some capacity. And as absolutely grim of a story as that is, in some way, again, it kind of is endearing and it brings hope to people that even if something so tragic as the slave trade could allow something to survive and thrive and create something new, then maybe Detroit isn't so bad <laughs> in some capacity. Can you maybe talk a bit more about sound-wise, I guess, what stands out to you about Drexia in terms of this escapist scheme that we're talking about? I mean, they were using synthesizers in a way that you didn't really hear other people using. You know, you can have a 101 and a Juno and all these things, and people were using them for largely the same things. Well, they, they were getting the same sounds out of them, but Drexia had this... It's like they turned every knob just a little bit further, or maybe, you know, kind of used a combinations of settings that most people would scoff at, but they were making it into this really funky... I mean, funk, in a way. That's literally what it was. Is it, very had, it had that kind of... George Clinton kind of groove and swing to it, and they were just creating like way different, way different approaches to stuff, but also just how quickly things were moving in their songs. All their songs are only three minutes long, four minutes long, but it feels like you just heard a whole seven minute techno track. It's just they just moved through things so quickly and so rapidly and kept the energy up. And I think that's kind of what switched a lot of people is that. It doesn't have to be a magnum opus, but if you can smash eight songs onto two sides of a vinyl, that's, that's more impressive in some capacity. <laughs> so, going back to this underwater world that we were talking about, what did the construction or concept of that fantasy world mean to you as, I guess, a young music lover in Detroit? You kind of just wanted to follow along. Like I said, in like a comic book sense, you just kind of waited for the next issue to come out, which was the next Drexia record. Because the titles are all very bubble metropolis and like all these things, they, they all kind of, they, they conjure up weird images in your mind. You kind of want to wonder what Gerald and, and Donald were thinking. Like, do you kind of really just want to be in their head? Because you can almost hear. Like, the, the, the song title kind of relates to the feeling of the track and... It makes you wonder because you can tell that they were definitely sitting at home with the whole Drexia story and kind of probably drawing. I wouldn't be surprised if there's like storyboards somewhere that nobody's ever seen that they're, they're telling a whole story that goes with everything. So yeah, you kind of just, just picked up on it and you just kind of put it on and let your mind wander because all of them are so interesting and so different. Mm -hmm. When did you first discover Drexia? Boy, when did I first discover Drexia? That's a good question. 
I mean, I didn't really get into techno until about 1996, but I had always come home from school and flipped on television and watched the new dance show, which uh, you're familiar with this. Okay, good. And there was always, because they always kind of scrolled the track title at the bottom like MTV would do. And every once in a while there'd be like a Drexia thing. And it was just, and of course I didn't know how to pronounce Drexia at the time. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was just like, ah, oh, that, you know, that one, that guy's, the, they stick out because it just it was super unique. Very, again, like I said, it's very high energy and very just, uh, in a way, like kind of claustrophobic because the way it, all their tracks just move so quickly. But you're just like, wait, did he just play two or three tracks or was that just one, one piece of work that he was putting together? And the Drexia stuff always just stuck out because it's super unique. It just had a futuristic vibe to it. Like I said, it was some of the synthesizers and stuff. It's like, I know I've heard that before. That's that's not what it's supposed to sound like. And what did you what did you do? <laughs> do you think that techno has lost this futurist sound now that we're, I guess, living in the future that techno was kind of dreaming about? Yeah, I mean, I think techno is not nearly as unique as it was. There's a lot of conformity, and there's a lot of just backpacking on somebody else's kind of. You you can tell when a track is a hit. Because within the next three months, there will be 200 versions that sound exactly like mm -hmm. it. And I don't think there's that um, energy to stand out and do something different. It's kind of being lost slightly. You know, some people paint, some people play sports. Detroit people just made electro and techno. <laughs> and I think that that's just what they did to express themselves and it's not about expression as much anymore it's just more about trying to make a hit there's a quote in a book called control i'll delete i don't know if you've read this no. um, it's by a person called rukinder <clears throat> singh and he describes detroit techno uh in the early days as having kind of a strange hope or a hopeless romanticism absolutely uh yeah like i said when you wake up and Every day is a struggle and there's probably not enough food to be put on the table and there's crime everywhere and stuff like that. You need some sort of escape. Like I said, the Detroit techno has always felt like a comic book to me. It's, it's, and I don't mean that in like a sarcastic way. I mean it in that sort of escapist, I need an alternate reality kind of way. It always was just look towards the future, forget about today, forget about tomorrow, but like focus on what you can do to make your life better kind of stuff. It always had this, it's always been very uplifting. Even though it's dark music, it's always somehow got this uplifting groove and vibe to it. Like especially like when you mentioned Derek May, like with the way Derek May plays, like that's, that's energy, that's positivity. It's not this dark, grumpy dude playing, you know? <laughs> it's that there's not like a bad demeanor about it. Actually the first, Quote, the first Derek May quote that I read to you was from a book called Sound Society and the Geography of Popular Music. And the book quotes May quite a few times. And he apparently had attributed the dreaminess that you're talking about to the abandoned buildings and the emptiness in the city that kind of put a wholeness, as he described it, in the music. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I mean, I can't speak directly about it because I wasn't around in the time that he was, but 
again, even today, there's still so much space left in Detroit that's just untouched or hasn't been touched in a long time that it just gives it this weird hollowness, like a creepy forest in a way. Uh, so, yeah, you kind of have to fill in your own blanks. You know, you kind of look at an abandoned building and you you kind of wonder what the, the people were like that lived there. And I think that's probably what he's trying to describe is you your imagination wanders because you can look at architecture of a building or an old house and go, yeah, those people were probably this this way and you just start creating your own world and that probably leads into what's the soundtrack for that house sound like or the, what's the soundtrack of that building sound like um, can you tell me a bit more about what the physical landscape of Detroit looked like when you were growing up you mentioned that it was a bit different it's a bit different but I mean they, it's not like they've knocked down buildings and put up new ones mm -hmm. it's still the same architecture that was there from the 60s and I think that's part of the charm is that it's a city that doesn't look like it's been destroyed and brought back up again, which is what a lot of modern cities do. They find an old building that doesn't fit with the block and they feel a need to tear it down and put something super modern and probably ugly up. Whereas almost all the buildings in Detroit are exactly the same from the 50s, 60s. And I think that's what gives it this super timeless, like you're just walked through a wormhole vibe because no matter where you look the architecture Detroit architecture is very different than other major cities in the state it doesn't look like New York it doesn't look like Chicago I mean it's it's its own unique place and all the buildings are so they're classy and I think that's something about it that just even though it's a burnt down war zone it's still classy as hell and I think that that allows for it to still feel dignified even when it's at its worst. I think it's interesting going to events in a place that kind of has this history. I mean, it's something that I don't feel in Berlin, even though Berlin, of course, has its own history with music. But in Detroit, I think you really feel the kind of history of techno when you're there. There's a pride. That, that there is absolutely one thing that Detroit people have always had, no matter what and how bad their day has been. They're the most proud people, and they are very proud of what they have, and they're proud of what they've done, and and especially Detroit's contribution to music in all aspects, mm -hmm. from jazz to Motown to techno. You can't take that away from people, even if they have nothing to do with it. They could just be a waitress at a diner. They will still be like, yeah, that's this is my city, <laughs> and this is my music, and they, they know the history, and they know, and they, they are very involved and they they feel like that they have con even if they haven't directly contributed they are part of something and they have contributed to it so i know that warehouse parties were quite a big thing when you were coming of age i suppose <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um in the 90s so can you tell me a bit about those experiences for you what was that like oh dear <laughs> uh they were heavy because it was like walking into a whole new world um a lot of the warehouse parties were not only just a challenge to even find, <laughs> because they very delicately tried to hide them via multiple phone numbers and map points and stuff like that, but once you got there after the thrill of the chase, kind of, that's when you just relaxed and you just went on a journey and you trusted the people that were involved and you trusted the music and you, it was, 
it's very eyes closed, just again with the escapism, you know, between having a whole school or work week and then this driving around the city multiple times to find this place. By the time you got there, all you wanted to do was just cut loose and like not have a care in the world. And that's the parties there did a very, very good job of doing that. So what do you think separates those experiences from experiences partying in Berlin, for example? I mean, I wasn't here in Berlin during the fall of the wall when I would venture to guess parties were largely similar because <laughs> it was all about finding a new a new building that you could get into and surprising people. You know, and now, like in Detroit especially, there's really only a certain amount of venues that people use. And at some juncture, it's just like going to any other club. You know, I've walked into Berghain, God knows how many times. I know I could probably navigate the place with my eyes closed. But it's nice to go to, like, when parties were happening in Detroit in the 90s and early 2000s. You had no idea what this address was, and you have no idea what this building was, and it was just, like, constantly, like, oh, this is a new, new experience. So that kind of triggered some excitement every time you were going out, even if it's the same DJs. It's a new experience because you were experiencing a new venue and different sound and a different layout, and maybe it was big party, maybe it was a small party, and it was just, it was, oh, it made it all really unique every time you, you, you made it out of the house. I mean, I was a big fan, once I got into it, of Richie Houghton's Jack parties, which were next level. He always took it above and beyond with the... I mean, he had an amazing sound system that he brought with him for parties, but they were always kind of a theme, and they always had some sort of crazy rearrangement of the room. So that you... It could have been a venue that we've been to before, but they would create a maze with sheets of plastic. So you kind of had to... You could hear the music, but you couldn't technically get to it yet so it was like a game in order to get there or he would you know with the way the lighting was or how how the parties went there was a party that he did called sickness and recovery it was two different parties and one party i can't remember the venue that the the night party was which was sickness but recovery was in a cornfield in canada <laughs> And you had, so you had to leave Detroit and go across the Ambassador Bridge into Canada and drive down this crazy road into a cornfield where they had smashed down a bunch of the corn stalks. I don't know how he paid for this. <laughs> but there was a generator running and I'm pretty sure Jeff Mills played in a cornfield. And it was just like, what is going on right now? Like this is, this is not normal. You're just used to going to a warehouse and having a loud system and a strobe light. But we're in a cornfield listening to Jeff Mills. So stuff like that. I mean, I guess it's like that's something that's missing today. I think it's been a long time that I've been to a party where I've really been just blown away by the venue. I mean, the first time that happened to me here in Berlin was the first, uh, well, the restart of the Atonal, right, Atonal. Walking, it, walking into Kraftwerk for the first time, and I know people still have the same vibe, but walking into Kraftwerk is still like an absolutely overwhelming experience because that room is just insane. But it's been a long time that I've been to a club that has blown my mind. Because in the end, club's a club. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like, I think, having the, the illegal vibe 
back in the 90s made it a bit different. But when you know that it's a licensed, sanctioned, pay your cover, there's going to be enough toilets to go around kind of thing. <laughs> something less cool about that. Yeah, there's sure. something a little less, you know, gangster about it. Uh, in your email, you also, sorry, in your email before we met, you mentioned the early Paxahau parties. Paxahau, I mean, they're doing the festival now in Detroit. And I used to help them with parties setting up. Um, when I was involved with this club Oslo in Detroit, uh, Paxahau always would do a couple parties a year there. So I worked with him multiple times, but Paxel parties, these these were also the kind of guys that carried on the tradition of Richie changing a venue that you've been to multiple times and making it feel different. They would always have amazing decorations, which is what I was always helping set up, like hanging weird decorations from the ceilings. And it could have been a club that you've been to 20 times, but you walk into a Paxel party and you were just like, are we still at the works? Like, this is so weird. And it, it totally allowed you to just treat the party as something new. Even though you know exactly where you are. Just because it looked different and felt different and maybe they closed off a section, it just, had, it just made you forget about the fact that you're still in the same old club and you could just enjoy the music and enjoy the people. And they did a fucking fantastic job doing it every single party. I mean, I'm, congratulations to them for how many... I would love to know how many old props and set decorations they have in their garage from their old parties. Because, I mean, I can think of countless ones, like a Steve Bug party called Get Your Bug On. The staff was all given bumblebee costumes to wear. So like all the bartenders are dressed up as bumblebees. There was like bugs everywhere. Everything was like, it was just like, holy, like you really went crazy with this. And I, it was just, it just makes it so much fun. It was almost like a cabaret in a sense. And they just, they nailed it. Every single party. When you saw a Paxel flyer, you were like, I have to buy a ticket for that one. It makes me think of the No Way Back party in Detroit, which currently still happens every year at yep. the festival. Um, they just have all this like, drapes hanging from the ceiling and that for me feels really special just being outside of kind of the regular festival venues and then the festival site itself yeah they I mean the no way back uh, interdimensional transmission guys they've been doing that for quite a while but their whole thing has always been hanging parachutes from ceilings and just kind of distorting the roof of the building so instead of it just being a square it kind of had this cloud feeling to the room and uh, yeah, they've always done that, and that's kind of their MO. And it works. It totally works because it, it takes away your ability to focus on the room just being a rectangle. So when you distort the ceiling with all these undulating surfaces, you don't even care anymore. And you're just more concerned with fo listening to the music and like listening and focusing on that. So, again, to quote this book, Control Alt Delete. There's a section where the author is talking about the collapse of the auto industry and how, ironically, Detroit's abandoned warehouses were kind of resuscitated by ravers and partygoers and people that were throwing kind of illegal parties. Maybe you can talk a bit more about how these warehouse spaces influence the type of music that was being played. Well, that was the thing is that there's, there's so much space in Detroit. Detroit's sprawled out in such a massive amount of land. And the parts that have the the old factories, most familiar to everybody is the Packard plant, which was gigantic because this was when assembly lines 
they didn't have the technology to actually turn the assembly line. So it literally had to be a giant row and then they maybe had to lift something up and start from the beginning again. So these buildings are, they take up, they're like a mile long. They're huge. And they have massive ceilings for all the equipment. It's, it's like almost too perfect. Like if you were going to abandon a building and, and you could see it repurposed as something else, something like that, it can only be used for a concert or in this case a rave because it's just, it just screams vastness and it, uh, it allows you to just utilize the space in whatever way you want. So yeah, I mean, we definitely broke into some, some stupid buildings, the Fisher Body Plant, the Packer Plant. You also mentioned these long DJ sets that kind of took you into uh, Wormhole, as you call yeah. it. Can you remember a specific time when that happened to you, or maybe the first time that that happened to you? The one that I will never forget is, and it wasn't technically Detroit, but Richie, it always goes back to Richie in Detroit, I think. Richie did his birthday party at a club called 13 Below in Windsor. So, Detroit Junior, basically, because it's just <laughs> right across the river. Um, and I think he played for 15 hours, all vinyl, because this is long before Tracker Scratch and CDJs. And I just remember being in that club for the entire time and coming out the next day and just being like, were we there for 15 hours or was that like 30? Like, you know, you're, you're soaked to the core. Your legs hurt, your brain hurts, but in the end, you kind of just walked out and go, I don't even remember what I, like, I, I don't have any problems in the world right now because I'm feeling so good from just sweating it all out with a bunch of my friends. And the first thing you want to do is go, when's the next one? <laughs> because it just kind of made you feel so good. But yeah, just like, a, he was the king of just teleporting you to another reality with his super long sets. He was definitely the best at it. But Mills did the same thing multiple times. Aquaviva, John Aquaviva was also good at it. I, yeah, he, he they, all three of them were just really pro at it. Claude Young was very good at it as well. Do you still experience that kind of trip these days? Yeah, but it's, it's I think because I've been DJing for a, a long enough time now and I'm clued in, I don't have the same, there's not the same mystique to it. Cause you know, when I was 16 and just getting into it, I didn't know any of these records and I didn't know anything. And it was just called like a new, new learning experience for me. But now like I'll go and listen to somebody do a, like Donato Dazi or somebody will do a eight hour set. And the first thing I'll do is I'll recognize a record and, and it just kind of, it stops me for a second because I'm now focused on Oh, what's that record and what labels it on and um, it, it kind of doesn't allow me to totally get loose so that's kind of the only problem is that once you get to a point in DJing no matter what even if you're not playing you're still kind of like I'm listening to it like even if somebody starts to mess up a mix I'm, I'm like no you can speed that one up <laughs> so it's not like the naivete isn't there anymore so I don't fully get that but there are definitely times where I can still go out and, and yeah, just totally check out mentally, not a care in the world, phone is off, I'm in a strange place, let's just have a good time. So I guess eventually you moved to New York. 
it, did it feel very different when you started going out in New York versus when you were living in Detroit? Fortunately for me, like it didn't, it didn't feel different because I immediately got involved with the bunker via Derek Plesleko, who I knew from Detroit. And when I got into the bunker, I felt like I hadn't missed a beat. Like the bunker felt just like Detroit and it felt like everything I just left. So I felt really good about it. And I didn't have any, there wasn't like a, a, a finding, like a hunting period of trying to find a party that I really enjoyed. So I fortunately was involved quickly enough and directly right away. But I did go to plenty of other parties just as, you know, I'm new to the city and let's see what's going on. And yeah, there were quite a few that it was just like, you can tell that there's like a commercial aspect to it, but also just felt like a lot of people were trying a bit too hard. It wasn't genuine. Whereas again, like the Detroit vibe was that like, this is my heart and soul. Whereas other people were kind of like, I'm trying to figure out what you want and not what I'm not expressing myself. So it kind of had this disingenuine vibe to it. That's not to say it wasn't good, but it just didn't feel unique. I also moved there kind of in that weird low point of Giuliani shutting down pretty much all the clubs and, you know, electronic music in any capacity was put into this weird bubble of like, it's just bad and criminal in some capacity. So it was harder and harder to find places uh, to do parties. I think it, a lot of it was just people were struggling to stand out, but it also did prove some creativity, but it just never felt the correct way. Do you think that, I mean, obviously it did, but how do you think exactly that the music coming out of Detroit was influencing the scene in New York, there is a great Frankie Bones lyric from his 1989 release called Call It Techno, where he says, it started in Detroit, but I'm out to exploit it the way I hear it. Do you think that's an accurate so if it means being uh, a little aggressive and putting a twist on it in your way and it works, congratulations. You found it out before the other 12 million people could do it. So there's no harm in that. But uh, yeah, I mean, for me, if there's any one thing that Detroit taught me is to just stick to your guns. Because there's a lot of people that, you know, going backwards to the beginning of the conversation, Drexia wasn't a thing until about five years ago when somebody, I think it was Rush Hour, did the box sets. Like, I mean, I knew about Drexia and the other people that were real heads knew about Drexia, but they were never this limelight star and now people are catching on to it. And I think the thing about Detroit is it's always been a slow burn. It's not meant to be a super quick impact for fame, whereas a lot of New York stuff is where it's just meant to get out there and get you noticed. Detroit's kind of got this, like, you'll come ask me in 10 years. <laughs> you know, like, they've kind of got this, like, Jedi mindset to it, where it's, it's, it's a bit more... It's not rushed. There's nothing rushed about it. 
When we were first talking about the topic for this conversation, you were saying, as you mentioned, that the goal was to stand out against the millions of other people who are also making electronic music. And you gave an example of David Mancuso and his loft parties. Because it flips the DJ side of things completely upside down, as opposed to blending records together in a story that you tell for hours and people are locked into a groove, he literally just would stand there, start a record at the beginning, play it without pitching it, all the way to the very end, applause, put another record on. <laughs> so it's a listening party. It's like a house party in some weird sense. So he was taking the concept of the disc jockey more into a, dare I say, radio sense, but... It was more about the experience and the story that a song can tell as opposed to trying to tell a story with multiple songs. So, yeah, like a techno DJ will try to take you on highs and lows, whereas he is literally going to let one song do all of that. And I think it was an artful, extremely delicate, difficult way of presenting music to people. And he nailed it. I mean, I definitely don't think that a lot of other DJs could... That. I don't, yeah, a listening party would be, it'd be tough because unfortunately today with Shazam and Spotify and stuff, it's hard to impress people because they're going to know it already. Whereas Mancuso could pull some super rare record that there's only like five copies of and he would play it and it was just like, it still would mind, blow your mind, even if it's a 35 year old record. Today, it's really hard to pull a number on people and to like really throw something in that nobody in a room of two or three hundred people has heard. I think it's almost impossible. You also mentioned Michael Alec in your email to me. Can you maybe explain a bit about who he is and why you brought him up in this context? Well, he's notoriously famous for um, the parties at Limelight that he used to do. And anybody that's seen Party Monster... Uh, with Macaulay Culkin uh, knows exactly just how flamboyant and spontaneous and ridiculous he was but that's what got him uh, noticed and it's what made his parties so famous is just being absolutely outrageous and for the most part offensive in a city that was so cloistered and trying to be trying to clean up in the 80s from drugs and crime and prostitution so they didn't want to do things like put a transvestite on the, their flyer and pass it out or have a party called Disco Bloodbath which was all about like horror movies and like fake blood and and just being violent and like just the, the absurdity of it the absolute ridiculousness of it I think is what made people be like, all right, you know what, something, something crazy is going on in New York and I, I need to be a part of it. Do you think that parties have to be absurd in order to stand out? No, of course not. You can throw a pretty straight-laced party with just a cool flyer and some good DJs, but again, I think in the, he nailed the timing in New York where people were being exceptionally politically correct. And he just took it to a completely different level and put a spin on it and took people out of their comfort zones. Like, really made people uncomfortable. And I think 
that still kind of works today, but yeah, he really, <laughs> he was able to push a lot of people's buttons. For every 10 people you offended, there was probably at least one that was just like, that's unique and interesting, and I kind of want to get in on that. And that kind of, like, Andy Warhol absurdity of it, that like, is it really art, or is it just taking the piss. So you mentioned the limelight, which is primarily where he was working, but he also threw parties in different venues, uh, subway stations, Burger King, Dunkin' Donuts, things like that. Um, <laughs> and I guess this is often referred to as kind of a revitalization of New York's downtown post-Warhol, as you said. I mean, I guess that kind of goes back to what we were saying about the warehouses in Detroit. Like, how do you think that these kind of different venues affected musical output in New York? Well, I mean, I've never been to a party in a Burger King. <laughs> so I can't speak directly at that one. But some places you go, you definitely feel like you need to play a certain way or you need to you need to act a certain direction. Perkine is a good example. Perkine's a good example. But even like, there's a time and place for things. If it's a daytime outdoor venue, I don't want to listen to super hard techno. I want to listen to like super, like really vibey, groovy house music because it's it's summertime and it makes me feel good and I'm outside, you know, so there's a context to everything. I can only imagine if you walked into a Burger King and there was a DJ playing. I don't know exactly know what kind of music you would play in a Burger King, but I know that they were all kind of guerrilla flash mob things. But yeah, space is space definitely has a a vibe that needs to be adhered to. So obviously you were not in New York around that time. No. But were those parties something that you were hearing about when you were growing up? So I know, it made it, bubbled its way over <laughs> to Detroit for sure. It was one of those things where you kind of heard about it and you were like, wow, that's, that's a real different way of doing it. Like, I thought we, just by going into a dark room and playing some good music, that was enough. But now you're bringing out crazy drag queens and you know, faking deaths and <laughs> making a big spectacle out of it. And actually murdering somebody. And then actually so. murdering somebody, yeah. So. so I was reading an article on Thump where the author was talking about the film Party Monster that you mentioned and how it really made him want to move to New York because it kind of showed clubs as these radical free spaces. He writes that he started to understand how dance music sounded like freedom. So what did the existence of those types of parties mean to you as a young person in Detroit? Well, I mean, I think that kind of nails it specifically. Like, maybe you come from a very religious family or uh, a household that's very cloistered in some capacity, and you see something like that. He's probably re um, referencing the, I think it was Maury Povich or Sally Jesse Raphael, or one of those, like, 90s talk shows that had the club kids on. And... That, I mean, if I was watching television, homesick on a Wednesday afternoon, and saw these people on television, I would definitely be intrigued. And yeah, I mean, let's say you come from the Midwest where things are pretty slow. You know, your parents are probably both you know, middle class employees somewhere, and life's not that entertaining. And you see something that vibrant and that, that extreme. And that just creative, I definitely can see how people would be like, yes, <laughs> I am going to New York. And I'm sure in some capacity people felt very isolated, no matter where they were growing up, or they come from very strict families, or uh, that people, even families that just didn't understand. Like, hey mom, listen to this new music that I'm playing. 
nah, it's the devil. <laughs> you know? Then it's it's hard to speak out about it, and it's hard to tell your friends. I mean, I even had that like where I was growing up that like I didn't really tell my friends that I was going to raves because I knew that ninety percent of the people that I was in high school with would absolutely not get it. What else was going on in New York at the time that you lived there? And you mentioned that you were kind of exploring different parties other than just the bunker. Was there places that were somewhat different or somewhat radical that you experienced? I mean, one of the first parties I went to in New York was, I'm pretty sure, a Resolute party, mm-hmm. who is now, they still throw pretty massive events. I'm pretty sure it was Resolute, but it was in an old bank vault in Tribeca, which is like the, where the World Trade Center area is. And it was it was one of like the only kind of renegade parties, I guess you could call it, that I went to in New York. Because it was just, it's damn near impossible to find a building that you could not illegally break into, but without the proper documentation <laughs> do a party in. And... Uh, yeah, it was kind of like, all right, this is still going on. Even though everything got shut down, there's still people doing some illegal-ish stuff in New York. And it was kind of refreshing, you know, because I kind of had this in my mind. I was like, I'm going to move to New York, and it's going to be stuffy and uppity and businessy all the time. But it actually kind of made me feel pretty good that, like, yeah, there was still something a bit more loose and... uh off the grid going on. Did you feel a kind of change in the music that you were playing or the music that you were seeking out when you moved? Like, how do you think that sound kind of transfers from one city to another? I moved in a more housey direction when I was in New York Mm -hmm. for a while because, you know, Detroit's so techno-oriented. And that's not to say that Detroit doesn't have its house aspect, but it just wasn't as prominent. But when I got to New York, it was just kind of like, yeah, you know, the city is so high stress that I don't want to play high stress music, this high energy. So I kind of went backwards and started playing slower, deeper, more trippy, funky house stuff because it felt like personally what was right, that people have extremely tough day jobs and the trains suck and the, the commute sucks and like everything is just pushing and energy and aggression that let's just try to bring it down a little bit and let's let's chill people out. I guess it kind of goes back to this escapism that we were talking about with Detroit. Yeah, totally. Again, with... I mean, I was a victim of it in the sense that I had a hour commute to work. And I had a desk job and everything like that. And yeah, no, I mean, I can totally understand that like when you get home from work on a Friday, all you want to do is check out. So in the same sense, yeah, it's totally just like an escapist removal from reality. Like the, the worst thing that could ever happen is you bump into a coworker at a party and you're just like, no, 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 no. this is not happening right now. Like I'm, I think that's still true today. It's still true today, but... But yeah, I don't know, it was it was the same thing. It's just yeah, come Friday night, I don't care where or how far the party is, we're doing it. So what about when you moved to Berlin, which was not too long ago? Yeah, it's been about four and a half years now. Did you feel kind of a an, another change, a third change, I guess, in your sound or the music that you were seeking out? 
funny enough, when I moved here, I kind of had this like resurgence to go back to where I started. Like I feel everything's gone full circle. Like I started off doing this really like minimal tribally techno stuff and worked my way down to more deeper trancier, houseier things and now I'm coming back around. <clears throat> but I'm also getting appreciation from both sides of the spectrum. But Berlin just kind of I don't know, I think it's the architecture here or something <laughs> that it's it's kind of brought back the the kind of like tough demeanor in some sense. Uh, but it's also, you know, moving to the other side of the planet and not being good with the language. <laughs> and it kind of builds up a, a, the stress level bubbles up a little bit. Mm -hmm. So it's more of a uh, release for me than it is for anything else. What does freedom mean to your music or to your DJing in particular? I mean, I'm still a big proponent of the escapist side of it. I firmly believe in when you go out and spend your 12, 15, 20 euro, it should be about not being concerned with your day job or your home life or whatever stresses you have. And I'm kind of striving more and more for that when I, when I play in the sense that people are paying money to see me, so I should make sure I provide them with that four, five, six hours of just, there's no, there's no cares in the world. It's, so, it's almost like being under anesthesia in some sense. I think it's perhaps fair to say that this freedom that we're talking about is stemming from the era when techno made its way from Detroit over to Europe, when the Berlin Wall came down at the end of the 80s. I think this was a time in the city when it was there was quite an anarchist attitude. There was a lot of abandoned spaces to be used for parties, similar to what we're talking about in Detroit as well. So it kind of feels like we're coming a bit full circle on yeah, the talk yeah, here, coming totally. back to Detroit. Yeah, I noticed that it, it immediately. The very first time I came here is that it definitely has a, for lack of a better term, fuck you mentality, in the sense that people were oppressed for long enough here and you can't take that away from them again. And they're going to stand out in a more vibrant and a more loud and a more pronounced way because they're not only given that freedom here, but nobody's really judged. There's no judgment. I think Europe in general, whereas in the States, anything you do can be litigated and immediately, like you will immediately get sued because you will offend somebody. Whereas here that just doesn't exist. So without that fear of some level of persecution, people just straight up do whatever they want. And sure, somebody's offended. That's impossible to not offend somebody. But they're doing it in a way that it's just like, look, if you don't like it, don't look. Whereas in America, it's like, oh, you don't like it? Well, I'm gonna milk you for like $10,000. There's just, there's like a different angle to it. And I feel like here, because people don't have to feel like they're going to offend, then they can just, they can be who they wanna be or they can say what they wanna say or they can paint what they wanna paint. I mean, it's just a lot looser and more and that, in turn, allows people to feel better about what they do because they're not constantly feeling judged, and that 
turns into more expression and it just snowballs into this completely open freedom. When I interviewed Dmitry Hegemani last year for the Trezor 25th anniversary, he was saying that in this time after the wall came down, it was like the city was on fire because there was so much energy, uh, so much creativity, all thanks to this reunification, this togetherness that's very new to Berlin at the time. I mean, I think it's always, in no matter what, in this, this again, going back full circle Detroit, even though Detroit at the time, and even today, is still a very racially biased and segregated city, there was never one point that I didn't go on a dance floor and share space, old, young, black, white, gay, straight. It didn't, it didn't matter at all. You were all there for the same purpose and that same end goal, which was to just have a goddamn good time. And you see the same thing in Detroit, and you see the same thing here. And I think that music, especially electronic music, it's... I've always ex described techno and house as it's, it's a very eyes-closed sport. <laughs> and not in the sense that like you're not paying attention to what's around you, but it's more in the sense that it doesn't matter. It's You're, you're there to just be and to enjoy yourself and to let loose and to cut loose and to f eliminate whatever drama is in your life. So it doesn't matter who you're rubbing shoulders with at a party. Are you there for the same end goal? That's all that matters. What does this kind of freedom that we're talking about, what does it mean to you now as a DJ over 20 years? I think it's, it's really important for people to not forget that in the end, this is all meant to be fun. That it doesn't have to be super serious. It doesn't have to be political. Even though a lot of it from the beginning was meant to do that and it was meant to speak to a broader audience about struggles and persecution. In the end, this is something that's supposed to kind of allow you to just take off from the planet for a couple hours and have a really good time.